Welcome to the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast. We have a new participant here at Health Systems Global Day 3, which is actually kind of day one because the first two were kind of satellite sessions. I'm here with Deepa Rajan from the World Health Organization, and we have just been talking about terminology, but let's hear a little bit about who you are, your background, and then a bit more about the conversation we are having. Thanks, Kim. Yes, my name is Deepa and I am with WHO. I was with headquarters until very recently for 16 years. Um, and in July, I moved to the European Regional Office, specifically a sub-office based in Brussels called the European Observatory for Health Systems and Policies. I've The past decade or so, I've been working on health systems performance, community engagement, primary health care. Excellent. The community engagement angle, you were telling me a bit about there's so much different terminology out there that we hear all the time that you had a discussion about what language you would use. Can you talk us through that? In the health space, specifically in the programmatic health space, when we're looking at malaria programs or HIV programs, often the term that is used is community engagement, probably because the focus is on engaging with a certain community, such as the HIV community or community of people affected by NCDs or whatever. So a certain community of people affected by a certain disease or who are part of a cohort, like the term community engagement is quite anchored, I think, in the global health, public health space. We put out last year a handbook on social participation for universal health coverage. In the two years that we spent developing the handbook with an external and internal advisory group, we also reviewed the different terminologies used and looked at all the different definitions. In the end, we kind of landed on social participation because we wanted to make the point that this is about engaging with communities, but also with civil societies sometimes as intermediaries and sometimes just with the general lay public who may or may not be affected directly by a certain health topic. We thought that was a bit broader. The term social participation is broadly used in the Latin American region. In this region of the Americas, it seems to be quite anchored in a lot of the declarations, frameworks, resolutions around PHC, primary health care, and universal health coverage, and the essential health, public health functions. All of those documents, you'll see the term social participation. There are regions within the WHO network that prefer the term participatory governance. It goes back to the fact that governance is something that's seen to be largely done by governments. Since we're a member state-run organization and we mainly work with our member states through governments, through ministries of health, this is the term that tends to be preferred, at least in the health systems space. When going to the programmatic departments, they often still use community engagement. There's a large variety of terminology. There's a lot that I haven't even mentioned. We did a whole view and review of definitions, which is in the chapter one of our handbook on social participation for universal health coverage. But these are the three, I think, that are most relevant at the moment. That's fantastic, thank you. There's new terminology there that we don't use so much. It's really good to understand across the world how we use language and what it means as well. Tell us more about the handbook. That sounds very interesting. So the handbook, we released it last year, 2021. And and it was preceded by about two years, more or less, worth of research. It was steered by an external advisory group, which we call the Social Participation Technical Network, and then also an internal group of WHO experts working in the topic, because, as I mentioned previously, a lot of the expertise and experience in this realm of community engagement comes from the vertical programs. We had people in that internal group from the malaria department and the HIV department, etc., and they have long-standing experience 
organizations working with communities. Then we did nine case studies where we did primary data collection in nine countries in all of the different WHO regions. Then we did about eight literature reviews. The point of this handbook was to target policymakers in the how-to of participation. What we see is a huge capacity gap among policymakers, mainly because Policymakers in the health space tend to have quite a medico-technical background. This is not something they've been trained to do. They haven't been trained to engage with people. They haven't been trained to listen to what experiential knowledge and translate that into something that's policy relevant. That's exactly what this handbook aims to give guidance on and support. You know, how do we organize a participatory space? How do you think through whom you invite? What is representation? Who represents whom? How do you define your policy question that you want to discuss in that space? What is the format and design that you use? There's so many options. There's citizens jury, free for all, open mic sessions. There's more deliberative processes like citizen panels. There's so many different formats and inventory space design that you can use. It's a bit mind-boggling to figure out which ones you should use for which topic and how. The hammock sounds amazing. I also love the fact that you've designed it for policymakers by the sound of it. A year on, you released it last year. What is your feeling? Are policymakers using it? Is it working well? We do get quite a few country requests for support where we go in and see what the policy process is and see how we can build in participatory processes into that process. The largest obstacle that we still face in countries is political will <laughs> for participation. So there's often this vague idea that, okay, we need to do some civil society consultation or we need to bring in communities into this process and that's where we get the requests. Then when you actually go into countries, you see reluctance in, on certain aspects of the participatory process or people or policymakers realize that it takes some time, that you have to invest in it and the process has already started. The political will issue is a challenge and that's why one stream of work that we're working on is to move towards a World Health Assembly resolution in a couple of years. We're working now region by region to get buy-in from member states for regional committee resolutions to then feed into a World Health Assembly resolution in a couple of years. The point of that is to engage with member states at a higher level to get the political will. At the same time, we're trying to work with civil society organizations also through the UHC 2030 civil society engagement mechanisms and other platforms because WHO doesn't necessarily have those platforms to work directly with civil society. We have to work through other platforms to work with civil society to support more grassroots type movements so that it's top down and bottom up together. Hopefully that will bring about some more political will to actually invest in participatory spaces. Most countries are okay with the principle of participation and agree to it, but when it comes to going from the principle to action, we haven't seen so much action on that. There's exceptions and there's some good practices here and there. A lot of ad hoc um, participatory spaces or processes happening. We want to see something more regular, frequent, institutionalized. We're not there yet, but I'm sure we'll get there. That sounds really good. It's useful to hear how you're tackling that political agenda in different ways. So that's fantastic. So here at the conference, you've been presenting the handbooks and I've seen you in many sessions. How are the sessions going for you? Are you talking to lots of people? Are the conversations developing? It's been you know, really interesting. It's exciting to be here because we haven't seen each other in person for a long time. So it's great to see a lot of colleagues and people that we've met only like during the pandemic online and to see them here and to talk about intensifying our collaboration in our common goal. There is increasing 
interest in community engagement and social participation, partly, I think, stimulated through the COVID crisis, where that aspect has come out as one of the key defining issues of whether the country was successful in its COVID response. It's great to see this topic of community engagement and community connection being woven through the different sessions. I've seen many sessions around power as well and participation and really unpicking that. I think there's a real thirst for change there. You mentioned case studies right at the beginning in the handbook. Have you used those case studies and are they powerful in creating that political will in different contexts? Yes, partly. I mean, especially the best practice case studies, some of the typical best practice examples that countries that are doing this quite well, They we use them to kind of give other countries something to orient themselves towards, to have that documented in detail exactly how they've done it, how they've put their process together, how do they get their funding, how do they uh, do their select their participants. That's been really useful in knowledge sharing and knowledge brokering. And in country as well, with these case studies, we've tried to also feedback sessions in countries to make sure that the, the results feed into something at the policy level. We finished the case studies around COVID, when COVID hit, so we didn't do them as intensively as we wanted to because we were all grounded at home. Now we're trying to get them out, publish them, have the published piece be the object of a sort of policy dialogue. Last question before I let you get back to the conference. We'd like to end a piece of advice for people that want to engage communities. What would you give them? I think the first thing is to understand who your community is and get a sense of who they are by first informally engaging with them to get a sense of who they are, what are their issues, what's their language, what are their concerns, and bring them on board in that development of your community engagement process. That's often easier said than done. What is What I found to be quite helpful is that early on through the informal engagement, you um, can find out fairly easily who your champions are and who your intermediaries will be, who has the trust of the community. And that can be um, sort of the person or people or institution that you work with and go via, so to speak. Trust has come up in a lot of our interviews throughout this and also throughout the podcast. Nearly every episode talks about that importance of trust. Thank you so much for joining me today. Enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you very much. We have a brand new guest today, Anne, on day three at Health Systems Global Symposium Conference. Anne, welcome. I hope you're enjoying the conference. How has it been so far? It's been fantastic. Having a great time connecting with old friends, but also learning, sharing, always fun. Tell us, I know that you said that you don't directly engage with communities, but you do want communities to be more engaged in the work you do. Tell us, first of all, who are you and a bit more about that. Thank you, Kim. My name is Anne Musuva. I work for an organization called ThinkWell in Kenya as a country director. ThinkWell is a health systems development organization that supports countries in their journey towards universal health coverage. One of the projects that we've been implementing in Kenya is about supporting various county governments to better implement the Linda Mama program. Linda Mama is a free maternity program that offers free care for mothers at point of use. And so mothers get free maternity services delivery, antenatal and postnatal services. What we have seen from my evaluation of this program is that the program is tending to benefit the wealthier off and those who are more educated, yet the project is actually designed for the poorest and most vulnerable women. What we've realized in the course of our work is that most vulnerable women do not actually know about the program. This really speaks to the point of engaging communities. As we are designing a really great project from our fancy offices in Nairobi, we really have to think about how we'll actually engage communities 
to know about the, the intervention that we've designed for them, to get their voice and feedback, and to get them to actually benefit from this project that we've thought through. Wonderful. And do you have an idea how you might do that yet, or is it too early? I wouldn't say it's too early. There are many other there, there are ways that have been proven out there. So one, for example, is just use of community health volunteers who are available in our setting in Kenya. They know about the project, and I think there's actually an opportunity for them to reach out to the women they interact with on a daily basis within these communities. Community health volunteers map out households within their village and able to tell which woman is pregnant, who needs care, and can refer them to the health facility and let them know about this program that can benefit them so that they do not have to fork out money trying to pay for delivery services and so on. Have they been involved so far at all or do you think it just needs more involvement from their part? I think it needs more involvement. The engagement of community health volunteers has been limited. This program has been focused a lot, I would say, at facility level and at county level. In our experience, even with the public facilities, some public facilities do not even have much awareness about the Linda Mama program. For example, what benefits are there? How much funds should they be claiming for reimbursement from the National Health Insurance Program? I think generally there is a lot of room for communication about the program, both at facility level, but also at community level. Wonderful. Thank you very much. I know you want to go to your next session. What are you going to next? I'm going to a session on corruption and how to deal with corruption. That's one of the main problems that we have on the continent. Well, I won't keep you very much longer. Thank you very much. Have a great conference. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, it's day three of the HSR conference here in Bogota and I'm here with Rachel Farquhar who's going to be telling us about her work in Papua New Guinea and also her reflections on the conference so far. Hi Rachel and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, it's good to be here. Thank you. Please can you tell us a bit about the work that you do and your role? I am one of the partnership managers on the Strive PNG program which is a vector bond disease surveillance program in Papua New Guinea. It brings together researchers, implementers, government partners, from across um, 13 different organisations. We've adopted an explicit partnership-based approach which has got shared design as well as guiding principles and coordination of all of the activities that are rolled out in PNG. Um, and we work really closely with a neutral partnership broker, Annie Dory, who's based in Papua New Guinea. My role is really supporting the partnership, but then also undertaking some of the health systems research there with another colleague of mine, Zebedee Carey, at the Institute of Medical Research. Super interesting. I think this is a really great model for partnerships and it's really inspiring work that you do. Can you tell us about what your role is like, any challenges that you face, what your day-to-day -day looks like? The role, it's quite different on a day-to-day -day basis. Working in a big partnership like that, there's things that pop up and change all the time. I think what's interesting about working in a cross-cultural partnership as well is the diversity and perspectives that are brought to the table. I think a lot of my role is supporting partners to find common ground, but also enabling them to be able to transform an idea in a way that really brings people's strengths to the table and also shares the resources across the partnership where you've got organisations that all have their own unique strengths and expertise and it's just really about how we navigate that and how we make the most of it to ultimately generate more impact and have a better outcome. I think it's both interesting and complex and difficult at times as well. I think definitely with 
not only the amount of people that are involved that all come from really different backgrounds, but just the kind of different skill sets that are at the table as well. We experience challenges in finding that common voice, but also there's power in differentials between Australia and Papua New Guinea. There's complex health systems challenges that we work with, and these all are able to be overcome because of the partnership, but it's also something that really needs to be invested in to make the project work and have sustainable outcomes. Absolutely. That's really, really a great insight into yeah, the realities of working with such a big cross-cultural partnership. Thank you for that. I know that you also do some work that's more directly engaging with communities, so I wondered if you could tell us a bit about that as well. One of the other projects that we're involved in is called NatNat, and so in PNG in Tokpisin, NatNat stands for mosquito, but it's also a nice long acronym for newly adapted tools and network against mosquito-borne disease transmission. I think I got it. What we're doing under the NatNat study is trialling new vector control tools that complement the existing tools in PNG, which is long-lasting insecticide nets, and field testing them in four communities across the north coast of Papua New Guinea in Medang province. And I think with any new tool, one of the big parts of that is understanding what the acceptability and feasibility will be like within a community. I think one of the clear things that's come through is the importance of really staggered community engagement at different points of time. Also just the importance of long-standing historical relationships with the community through trusted members of their societies. We work really closely with the Institute of Medical Research who lead the implementation of this work and their ongoing relationships with all of these four communities for decades now has meant that there's a solid foundation of trust. As with any new tool or any new intervention that's brought into a into a place it's about really spending the time and investing in the time to make communities feel well informed and provide an opportunity for them to ask any questions. I think it's just important to have a strategy that doesn't mean anyone's left out. We did massive surveys or group meetings then we also did multimedia things where we've got flip charts or a video session. I think you know having these at different points of the day as well where some people might be out working in the middle of the day and available at night time. I think that's a really really great point. We've heard a lot about relationship building and the importance of trust and sustaining relationships in our other podcasts so I think you've really echoed that nicely. As a final question, how are you finding the conference? Are there any really interesting talks you've been to or any sort of takeaway messages you have at this point? I'm loving the conference. It's been really interesting. The first three days have been great so far. One of the things that just keeps on coming up is the importance of partnerships, but really meaningful partnerships, and that in complex health systems problems, it's not going to be achievable without diversity of perspectives, skill sets, resources, and just... um, the value add that having meaningful partnerships brings to any research program, but particularly ones that are aimed at health system strengthening, I think is the take home message from the last three days. Yeah, completely agree. That's a really great note to finish on. So thank you so much for coming to talk to us and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you. You too.